Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with L. Dowd. L. is a Lutheran minister and recent author of Baptized in Tear Gas, from white moderate to abolitionist. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Harada. Harada is an indie rock project from Norway. You can get connected with L and Harada and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have L. Dowd with me, and L. on top of being a pastor, you are a recent author of an incredible book called Baptized by Tear Gas, and uh, I'm really excited to talk all about that. But with that said, who is L. Dowd to L. Dowd? Yeah, thanks. It's really good to be here. Thanks for the invitation. I like follow you on all the socials, so I was like excited <laughs> to hear from you. But yeah. Um, yeah, my name is L. I use pronouns like she, her, and hers. I recently graduated from the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago, and mm. like you said, I'm uh, I'm a candidate for ministry in the ELCA, which means pastor. And I also uh, do some community organizing. So I organize with a group called Southsiders Organized for Unity and Liberation, Soul, here in Chicago. And I have this book, Baptized in Tear Gas, but I'm also a mom. So I have two teenage girls, Alice and Jessica. They're 14 years old. And that stuff is pretty much my life, right? Like some little bit of organizing, a little bit of ministry, a little bit of writing and my family. But honestly, all those things, I like to say they use the same muscle. Like it's like Mm. the same work, right? Different facets of the same work. And I would imagine that muscle has probably been stretched and grown quite a bit over the last several years. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So this is your first book. And one of the things I ask, especially for first time authors, is what did you learn about yourself in this process of writing? You know, making a book is not an easy task. So, yeah, what did you learn about yourself as you were writing the book? So I think one thing I learned, which is, you know, maybe like a lesson I keep learning is just like my level of... like fragility, honestly. So a lot of this book is about like reflecting on things I used to believe and things I used to do. And a lot of it is stuff that I'm like not proud of and like don't feel good about. And so spending a lot of time like dwelling in that and really reflecting on like the implications of some of the things I used to say and believe and the ways that I like still fall into those patterns, particularly when it comes to you know, being indoctrinated into white supremacy and, and, and reinforcing the system of white supremacy. Um, I definitely like am very fragile is what I learned about myself is that like, it's really easy for me to like fall into shame spirals. And of course that's like super unhelpful because it's like making things about myself again. So I think it was like a good lesson to learn because then I can kind of like catch myself doing it. And I feel really like grateful for the people in my life who act as like a safety net and a mirror to be like, okay, 
we have to keep moving forward and you can be accountable for the things that you have done and still try to limit the harm that you've perpetuated and, and repair some of it too. Mm -hmm. One of the things, yeah, along those lines that I really liked about your book is oftentimes, especially right now with all these books about anti-racism coming out, a lot of times, a lot of those books seem to really serve the status quo for a lot of white moderates. Like it really Mm -hmm. doesn't challenge them in a lot of ways. And a lot of times, especially if those anti-racist books are being written by white people, it's because they sort of ignore in those books their own white fragility. And so that's one of the things I loved about your book is you're very honest about your journey, but you don't just allow yourself, and you clearly haven't, you don't allow yourself in just staying in white modernism. And I mean, that's like, I mean, that's the subtitle of the book. I mean, you are moving in a journey. And I think that's like one of the things that I really appreciated about the book is that you're very honest about your like white fragility, but also it you're not like complacent in it whatsoever. You are challenging not only yourself, but for the white audience who's reading this. That's the hope, right? Like I'm, I'm hopeful. Like the reason I wrote this book was not to like feel bad or something. Like the reason I wrote it was, my hope is that could be like a companion on the journey, right? That Mm. instead of casting myself as like an expert, which I'm not, I don't think any white people are, but I'm definitely not, I'm definitely a work in progress. So instead of casting myself as some kind of expert or something like someone who has it figured out to instead be like, Hey, these are things I used to feel, think and believe and do. And maybe you recognize yourself in this and like, maybe we can like go through this transformation together. So I tried, you know, I didn't want to cast myself as like, a hero or anything, because that would not be at all honest to the story. Mm-hmm. And yeah, at the same time, like there, there's a lot of tensions in writing the book in the first place. Mm-hmm. So my hope is that it like can really journey alongside people and move us all forward towards our collective liberation. Absolutely. So obviously, because you are a future pastor and you're in the theological world, what did you learn theologically while writing the book that you maybe didn't know before? I know that the book isn't like very explicitly theological, but I'm sure there's some maybe theologies that uh, you learned while you were writing it. I think something that I... I don't know, learned or became way more real to me, maybe is a better way to say it is the ways that we so often in the white church, like hyper spiritualize spirituality, theology, scripture. Like we sort of act as if the gospel is about our floaty spirits going somewhere after we die. And it really has nothing to do with here and now and our bodies and our feet on the ground here on earth. And I think noticing the ways that that tendency has really served systems of oppression, like white supremacy and noticing who like those narratives serves, right. It like serves to maintain a status quo was something that became a lot more real to me, right? Like if we look at the story, for example, of Jesus's crucifixion, and we're just really hyper-spiritualizing it and sort of decontextualizing it from the socio-political reality of the time. And it just sort of seems like this, yeah, abstract, like theological story, the crucifixion really loses a lot of its power because that's why we don't notice crucifixions in our own time and place Mm. is because instead of thinking about the way it looked in the Roman empire and noticing that it doesn't look that much differently now, we just remove the story completely from its physical reality. And that obviously doesn't serve our, our liberative purpose. So yeah, that is something I became like even more convicted about was that like the gospel is for like 
bodies as well as minds and spirits and communities and like we're whole people and mm-hmm. the gospels for whole people. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you talk a lot about throughout the book is your involvement in protest movements. And you write a, a brief section about apocalypse. And I'm curious, how are protest movements apocalyptic events? Yeah, you know, like, especially some of those photos early on in, in the uprising in Ferguson, but also from last summer, 2020, throughout the United States, you know, you see these pictures that are like, it looks like the Hunger Games, right? Like there's these mm. like shadowy figures enveloped in smoke and it's kind of like silhouette, and it really, really looks like, I don't know, the end of the world, right? So in that sense, it's like, it feels very apocalyptic, but also in the sense of like the original Greek, right? Which means to reveal something, right? For things to be laid bare. And so for me, Ferguson in my life was definitely apocalyptic because it made real to me things that had been true all along, but had been concealed from me because of my indoctrination into white supremacy, because of my own internalized biases, because of the ways that I had been raised and my own identities. And so it felt like Ferguson and the, you know, continued protests and liberation movements was more and more unveiling, seeing more and more truth, which was often very jarring and uncomfortable. Like I kept bumping up against different internalized narratives that I held. And like, you know, it felt like the worlds were ending and beginning all the time because everything that I learned made everything else feel like my whole life was a lie, right? Like it sounds dramatic, but really, you know, like every, every time I was learning something new, it really, it was destabilizing, but that ultimately led to something like positive, right? Like there's Mm. plenty of things that need to be unveiled and plenty of things that need to be disturbed for something more beautiful to grow. One of the other things that you talk a little bit about at the beginning of the book is what white people must sacrifice in protest movements. And so, yeah, I'm interested. What is it that white people must sacrifice in order to be a part of these protest movements? I think like, it's a little bit easier for me to like speak from my own perspective. Although I think there's like some wider, I'm hoping that's why I wrote a book that there's some like wider application for like white folks in general. But I think like, for me, it was really clear that some of the things that had to be sacrificed were my own values around a very, very narrow definition of, you know, pacifism or peace Mm. or nonviolence, like these ideas about, you know, all disruption, all conflict being inherently bad. My ideas about how people should always like ask nicely in a certain way and not upset anyone and how conflict or tension was bad and something to be avoided. All of those things were things that, that had to be sacrificed, right? Things that had to die for, for something new to be born in me and in my life. And I think in the world too, but I'll also say that I think like for white folks and for all of us, like there is a certain cost to liberation movements. And like, Mm. I think the cost is worth it, but there's definitely been a cost to me, you know, in my, in my personal life, like there's relationships that have fallen away. There's things in my physical and mental health that have been affected, obviously like financially. Right. And so I think there is, there's a cost, particularly for, for white folks who are used to benefiting from these systems and not having to solve the problems that they create, having to let go of some of those vestiges of supremacy, really, 
but the good news is that there is something better coming. That's better for all of us, that this is not just sort of like a favor that white people are, are doing to be involved and caring about and invested in black liberation. But actually we all have a stake in this work. Along with that, one of the things that I've really experienced in the last like year or two in terms of what I must sacrifice for myself is that white supremacy is actually embodied. So it's not just enough for us to like learn about the history of white supremacy and so on and so forth. But these things actually exist in our bodies. And on the flip side, for for people of color, they actually experience racialized trauma in their bodies. And so one of the things that I've been just really fascinated by lately is like what sort of processes and practices actually need Mm -hmm. to happen within my own body in order for me to rid myself of the embodied white supremacy that does exist within within myself. And uh, yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts around that or yeah. maybe practices or processes that you've experienced in your own life in terms of like how white supremacy actually is embodied. Um, because I would imagine for you, it wasn't just simply that you learned a lot of things about anti-white supremacy, but you actually had to start practicing these things in your own body to yeah. actually sort of rid yourself of white supremacy in your body. Yeah. So I think like, that's part of the reason, you know, at the end of each chapter that there's reflection questions, but also action items, right? Like there's Mm -hmm. all this internalized work sort of that lives in our brains a little bit that needs to happen or that lives in our hearts, but there's also things, you know, sort of external things that we need to do in order to, to move forward and dismantle white supremacy in ourselves and in our communities. But I think for me, something that is really important or has been an important tool for me and maybe a gift that the church offers is that, like you said, white supremacy is so embodied. And in our, in my Lutheran tradition at its best, like it should be an embodied sort of faith, right? Like, and I'm not even just talking about like being out there in the streets marching, although I think like that is, has been huge for me. And there's so many ways to get involved in that way, but I'm even talking about how our sacraments are so embodied. So in the Lutheran church, we have two sacraments, baptism and Holy communion. And like, these are things that are supposed to be physical, tangible, embodied things that represent the sort of abstract and intangible. So when you're like smelling the bread, you're tasting the wine, you're listening to the water trickle in the baptismal font, those things are supposed to make like the grace of God more real to us. And one of the things that I've really been learning is the way, and and one of the hopes for this book, right. Is that for folks who are church people, that we can see that the way that these things are connected, that we actually have tools in our worship, in our history, in our Mm -hmm. tradition that can aid in these things. So just like the way that we heal from trauma is embodied, right? Like a lot of times trauma therapists really recommend things like running or yoga or drum circles that really foster a mind body connection. I think white supremacy is obviously traumatic for people of color who are its targets, but it also in a way is traumatic and disruptive for white folks because of the way it limits us and cuts us off from our own souls. And so one of the Mm -hmm. ways that we heal or that we sort of exercise the demon of white supremacy is to reconnect our bodies to our own souls and our own goodness. And one way of doing that, there's so many ways of doing that, but one way of doing that, that I have found has been really connecting through baptism and Holy communion, which is why, you know, the title of the books baptized in tear gas, because baptism in the Lutheran school of thought 
is yes, like a one-time event in which you're like, you know, sprinkled with water or whatever. It's like an initiation, right? But at the same time, baptism for Lutherans is supposed to be a lifelong journey. That's only complete once our time on earth is finished. And so we talk about it as a daily dying and rising. And so that same practice of sort of waking up, remembering your baptism, every time you wash your hands, you take a shower, you drink some water, you do the dishes. For me, tying that same sort of practice and seeing baptism is inherently tied to ending things like white supremacy and the cis-heteropatriarchy and corporate greed and all of the other things that harm us and harm our neighbors. We can continue as we remember our baptism and we do these like embodied physical things that connect our bodies and spirits. We can be recommitted to our quest for our collective liberation. You started touching on a point that I want to sort of unpack a little bit more, and that is that you started kind of mentioning that white supremacy also harms white people. So can you talk about the ways in which white supremacy also harms white people? Yeah, I think this is really important to talk about actually, because I think obviously it's also important to kind of, you know, give the very important caveat of that white supremacy's two tar- true targets are people of color and that it's not as if white people and people of color are sort of harmed in the same way or to the same degree by white supremacy, right? But at the same time, a lot of times white folks, when we, when we don't acknowledge the way that white supremacy harms us, we end up acting out of like a white savior type role that's really harmful, that continues to replicate white supremacy by centering whiteness. And so learning our own stake in this work is really, really important. And there's, you know, there's, there's so much to unpack about that. But one of the major things for all white people is the way that white supremacy limits our relationships. It limits our relationship with our neighbors. It also limits our relationship with God. It limits our relationships to healing and to like understanding the gospel. And it also limits and honestly undermines for those of us who are white church people, it really undermines our witness, right? If we're Mm -hmm. talking about Jesus and transformation and all of this good news. And yet white supremacy continues to run wild. It really, really is harmful to like our public witness. And so there's a lot at stake. I talk a little bit in the book too, about things I think are at stake for me, particularly as a white woman, as a bisexual, the ways that things like gender-based violence and queer antagonism are really wrapped up in white supremacy. And Mm. so because there are these interlocking systems of oppression, there is no way that we will end gender-based violence without also ending white supremacy. Mm. And so for any of us who maybe there's a lot of us out there who maybe hold like these various identities as both in some ways experiencing oppression and in other ways being in the role of an oppressor and experiencing privilege, we, we definitely have a stake in this work because none of the oppression that any of us face will end without also ending white supremacy. Oh, that's like a nugget right there of the, the whole piece about how even something like sexism and patriarchy and even um, homophobia and transphobia, all of it is connected with white supremacy. And none yeah. of those systems will ever be abolished unless we also abolish white supremacy. That is a nugget worth keeping right there. One of the other things uh, or one of the other themes throughout your book is that and I think this theme can certainly maybe make some white people pretty uncomfortable, but it's in the subtitle of the book. And that is going from a white moderate to an abolitionist. And I know a lot of people are kind of really hesitant and uneasy 
uh, about police and prison abolition. Uh, mm-hmm. What are maybe some things that you would suggest to one of those sort of white moderate people who are really uncomfortable when we start having these conversations around abolitionism? What are some of the things that you would maybe suggest, especially to those who might be listening, who are really uneasy with those kind of concepts and those ideas and those systems? Uh, what would you suggest to them about kind of, you know, moving them towards that abolitionist direction? Well, the first thing I would say is that this sort of like tension, discomfort that you feel, that I feel, that we all feel, anyone listening might feel around conversations like abolition isn't something to run from, right? Like we hear words like abolition and it can feel really scary. And so then it it can be tempting to sort of just like shut down because we like feel this inner conflict and we don't know what to do with it. So it's easier to just hide from it. But there is no transformation and there is no way forward without feeling tension. And so my fir- the first thing I would say is to, to really lean into that as much as you can and to seek out the gifts that tension can bring in, in giving us clarity and moving us forward. But the other thing that I would name about abolition is that one thing I had to learn is that some just because something is very new to me doesn't actually mean that it's new, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think of myself as a very informed person. I like to read. I like to research. And yet, like when I first heard of abolition, I thought it was bananas basically because I'd never heard of it, but just because a conversation is new to me, doesn't mean it's new. And there's been architects of this current iteration of the abolition movement that have been doing this work for decades. And they're, they're experts, they're attorneys they're sociologists. There's all kinds of folks who know so much who've really dedicated their lives to this. One thing I would say too, is that when we hear the word abolition, a lot of times we think of getting rid of something, right? Because Mm. abolish, it means to get rid of. So we think of getting rid of prisons. We think of getting rid of policing. And it is about that. But that's not the only thing abolition is about. And many of the architects of the abolition movement, like Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Dr. Angela Davis, have said that abolition is actually less about the getting rid of something and more about the building of something. So Mm. abolition at its heart is about building the sort of world where everyone has what they need to thrive, because that's what really gets at the root heart of crime. Abolition is about limiting harm. It's about finding pathways forward when harm does occur. And so abolition, yes, is about, you know, a world without police, but it's not a world without public safety. And in fact, it's a world that's more safe because we know each other, we love each other and we provide for each other. And so that's why I think abolition in particular is very relevant to people of faith because faith at its best is supposed to be about relationships, about caring for one another, loving one another. And abolition really focuses on knowing your neighbors, knowing your community, like really knowing, not just like waving from across the yard, but like deeply knowing the things that like keep you up at night, what brings you joy, your passions, your fears, and having those sort of relationships where we can be vulnerable with one another and care for one another. And so I think there's just so much overlap between faith and abolition because it's really the building blocks are about relationships. Mm, I love that piece. In my sort of experience now with abolitionism, I've also experienced in that way where it's less about getting rid of something and it's really about the world experiencing true healing and wholeness. Yes. And that is, I think, just such an important kind of insight that made abolitionism much more clear to to me and hopefully it would be to to other folks as well. Yeah, I think, too, it's like there's this there's this 
misconception that abolition means that tomorrow, you know, today there's not abolition and tomorrow we wake up and abolition has come. And what that means is we just fling open the jail doors and we just shrug and hope everything's okay. But that is like, not at all. Mm. Obviously like the model for abolition and the transition process is different in different communities because it's so inherently contextual, but no one that I know who works for abolition and who's dedicated their lives to abolition, no one's plan is to just fling open the doors and just shrug and hope everything's fine, right? Like that's, there's no one I know that thinks that that is how this works, that there's really, really a lot of work that goes into all of this. And it, it really is about making sure that instead of the sort of fantasy of safety or justice that we have now, that we can really live into the things that, that we need and deserve. You touched on this a little bit ago, but I'd love to kind of dive in a little deeper on this. But why is it that Christians must participate in protest movements? Yeah, I think for Christians, it's really important to think about the ways that Jesus himself was involved in a what we could call a protest movement, right? A, a movement for social renewal, social and spiritual renewal. And because we frequently hyper-spiritualize the story, we can sort of think of it, of it like, oh yeah, he like really wanted people to be nice to each other, right? And he he really wanted people to know that God loves them. And that's true. Like Jesus wants people to know God loves them. Jesus cares about us being kind to one another and compassionate with each other. But that's not the sort of thing that gets you killed by a Roman empire, right? right. Like you don't just get put up on a cross for telling people to be nice to each other. And so one of the reasons that Christians should care about being involved in liberation movements, whether that's directly through direct action in, you know, front lines kind of ways, or if that's through like jail support or mutual aid collectives or, you know, de defense collectives or the many other ways that people can be involved. One of the reasons that, that we should care about this is because it was the model that Jesus had and it was, he was serious enough about it and it disruptive enough that he, it got him killed. And so sometimes I, as like a, I don't know, form of accountability, I ask myself like, why, why is my public witness not threatening enough to systems of oppression, right? Why is quite the opposite typically the empires of today are not only not afraid of the Christian faith, but have basically domesticated it mm. for its own purposes. And so that's a really, really, really convicting thing for me that instead of being, instead of, you know, Christianity or the church being so disruptive to systems of oppression, to empires of our day, that we would be thought of as a, as a threat and be like, I don't know, disrupted by the FBI or something. Instead, we're like serving this role of propping up empires and we're really like doing the opposite thing of our intended purpose. Mm -hmm. Again, the book is largely based on your experience in protest movements. And again, being a person of faith, I am 
interested in what is it that you've learned about God while being a part of these protest movements? I've learned so many things. (laughs) I think one of the things that I've really learned about God is more about the ways that God's dreams for us are revealed in throughout generations and different times and different places. And how obviously that looks a little bit different based on who, who is like telling the story who the prophets are, who the storytellers are, but that there are these common threads that we can look throughout our tradition, um, and, and many faith traditions. And we can see our spiritual ancestors who are telling, telling us of a day where all people will be free. And that in every generation, there have been people who have been pointing towards this. And that, that means that these moments, these movements are not just for people long ago and far away in the past. And they're not just for some hypothetical future. They are for here and now they're for us. They're for me and you, and we can be a part of that. We are invited to be a part of that. And we can be the storytellers and the prophets, and we can support and amplify the storytellers and the prophets. And we can help to be part of the revealing of God's dream for all of creation now, like in our daily lives. And so that is like wild to me, right? Like to think about that, to like read these like ancient mysterious texts and hear like these prophets doing these like wild things and being like, wow, yeah, they're talking about they're talking about setting prisoners free and then thinking about how all throughout time people have been thinking about this. And now it's us, like it's our time. It's our time now. And we get to decide with God's help and with the help of our community, what role we're going to play in that. We can look back and tell our grandchildren that we were a part of something. Yeah. Like we're the Jeremiah's of the world now and we're the Micah's and, and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like the beautiful thing about, at least within the Christian tradition, is that we believe that God is actually calling us to be these people in the world. It doesn't end. Those stories don't end just in scripture. We are the ones that continue that story because it really is an unfolding story from the time that our scriptures were written to even now. Yeah. Yes. So there might be a lot of my listeners who are listening in, uh, especially my white listeners, who at some point want to be more involved in movements like you have. And maybe last summer they picked up a sign and went to a few protests and that's kind of been the extent of it. But mm-hmm. yeah, I'm kind of interested for for those listeners, what are more tangible ways or what are some maybe first tangible next steps that you'd recommend for them to get more involved in protest movements beyond just, you know, showing up with the sign? Yeah. So the first step is to do some deep reflection about your own stake in this work and think about the things that keep you up at night. The things that are like fire in your belly, like feel so true that they could be written on your bones kind of things. And, and those things will help you get clear about maybe what your part in all of this might be. But not only to like sort of think about like what are the things that really make you angry or or make you feel passionate or just like give you goosebumps, but also to like do the reflection of like how does that connect to your own story and why do you feel this way? Like why do we feel this way? And then the next step I would say is to form some deep connections with the people around you. And those same questions that you ask yourself about like what keeps me up at night and what feels so true, it could be written on my bones. 
to ask that of people around you and listen really, really deeply and to find the places where perhaps your stories and your dreams overlap. And that is a sort of place that you can begin to build. I know maybe sometimes in cities, it feels a little bit easier to like, I don't know, Google like a power organization or community organization, and you can find people who are already doing this work to help you slice the issue and get started. But there are people in every community in rural communities too, and in the suburbs, sometimes it's just like a little bit less formalized. And so, so much of it is about getting to know one another. The biggest thing is that we don't do this kind of work as individuals, like capitalism is super hyper-individualistic and has taught us this lie that like, I don't know, we're, I don't know, called to be like lone wolves out there or something. Especially in competition with one another. Yes, exactly. But truly that's not how any of this works, right? Like that's not, that's not how successful movements are made. We really need one another. And so we can begin to build one, one thing for me, like this example was like helpful for me when I like have explained this to other folks, but, you know, I know that I have a stake in black liberation for many reasons that I talk about in the book. And I also outlined just here, but also because I have black children, I have black teenagers. And so, you know, I am kept up at night about the world that they're growing up in and like, are they going to be safe? Are they going to be free? But like ending white supremacy is really big. Like I don't get up tomorrow and put on my to-do list, like L ends white supremacy. Right. So I need to find other people who also care about this and hear about their stories because you need a certain level of trust to take the kind of risks together that are necessary to move forward and to really make a difference. And when we see these other people and we meet these other people and we build relationships and we have trust, we begin to take risks together. We can sort of, you know, figure out our next strategic step to move together. So for me, now that I'm here in Chicago, I care about ending white supremacy because of my experiences in Ferguson. I care a lot about the carceral system and prisons and policing. And so when I was here and I started getting involved in uh, the organization that I work with, Soul, that I'm on the board for, I, in cooperation with this organization, we kind of figured out what's next for me. And so one of the things that was next for us in the state of Illinois was that Soul worked with a coalition of people across the state to end money bond. And this is a campaign that had been going on for eight years. And I was only a part of it for the last, you know, four or whatever, but this year we did, we ended money bond, um, Mm -hmm. money bond for folks who might not be familiar is, uh, the practice that when someone's arrested and accused of a crime before they've been convicted, you know, you get put in jail and you're stuck in jail to await crime unless you can pay your bail, which is essentially, you know, a ransom to get out. And typically what happens is that white wealthy people, you know, maybe, For example, Jason Van Dyke, uh, who is a white cop who murdered Laquan McDonald, he was able to pay his bill right away and go home and sleep at home waiting his trial. Um, But for tons and tons of black and brown people in the Cook County Jail, they just sat there, which means sitting there in jail, you you can lose your home, you can lose your job, you can lose your kids. You're much less likely to be acquitted of the crime because you can't work on your defense. And so ending money bond in Illinois doesn't end white supremacy, right? Like if what I really need is to end white supremacy, it doesn't do that. It also doesn't end mass incarceration. Although, you know, half of Cook County jail on any given day is people who are sitting there pre-trial. And once this rolls out fully in the next couple of years, that will make a huge difference to a lot of people. But what it does do is it puts such a crack in the infrastructure of mass incarceration that it does, it, it, it gets us, it gets us to move forward. And so Mm. now that we have had some success in that campaign. We can discern together as a community, 
what is the next strategic step forward? Mm -hmm. Because all of us um, that I work with primarily are really, really clear that ending mass incarceration and abolition is the ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. And so we have these little steps, right? These little pieces that we work on and we want them to be both winnable, but also big enough to make a difference. And so there's like some tension and discernment around that, but we, we can do this, right? Like that's like the example, the story, right. Is Mm -hmm. like, instead of waking up and ending white supremacy tomorrow, you get, you get to know what matters to you, what matters to the people around you, what work is already being done and what's the next strategic step forward that we can take together. Yeah. Go make a crack. Be crack yes. makers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it might be pretty obvious, but how is it that your book is inspiring and liberating theological work? A lot of what I hoped to do with the book, which, you know, it's a very imperfect offering, right? Like writing a book is so weird because <laughs> you have to like eventually be done writing it. <laughs> you know, like you like you could continue to like work with it forever, but so it's a very imperfect offering, but one of the things, you know, that I hoped was that the things that those of us who are in churches, the things that we talk about inside the church would begin to, to matter more or in a deeper way to the liberation movements that are happening in our streets. And that we would take some of the lessons and wisdom of liberation movements into our church services as well, right? That these things could inform one another, that when we take communion or when we remember our baptisms or when we read these like ancient freedom stories of our ancestors in scripture, when we sing these hymns that are freedom songs, we will be reminded and really connect to what is going on in the outside world and that that will make a difference for what we do as, as a church community of faith inside of worship, right? That like when we are at good Friday service. And we're like thinking about Jesus being crucified. We think about the ways that these lynchings continue in our own time, but also hopefully make a difference in our clarity about how to participate in the liberation movements happening outside of our walls and in the streets. Lovely. Last question, Elle, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? Yes, you can find me on my website, which is ldowd.com. You can also follow me on TikTok if you like really cringy, like <laughs> church humor. I don't know. It's kind of embarrassing, but that's um, ldowd ministry on TikTok. You can follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash ministry, or you can follow me on Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram at hownowbrowndowd. So my like unmarried name was Brown. It's like Brown Dowd. How now Brown Dowd on Twitter, <laughs> Snap, and Instagram. You've got like every social media. You got MySpace too, you want to plug? Oh man. I no, I, I do not have MySpace anymore. But I do have a medium account, I guess, is another one. But <laughs> uh, where can people get the book? You can order the book most places you normally order books, right? So if you are a person that orders from Uh, Barnes and Noble or Target Online or Amazon, you can get the book there. You can also get Baptized in Tear Gas directly from the publisher, which is Broadleaf Books. Or, and if I was going to make a suggestion, this would be my suggestion, you can order it through IndieBound and to look for your own independent bookstores that you could order from. And even better if those are black owned uh, bookstores, right? So IndieBound is the one I would push the most, but Regardless, you can pretty much pre-order it or order it anywhere that you normally buy books. 
Lovely. Well, thank you so much for chatting about the book. I think it's incredible. I mean, this is exactly the type of work that needs to be out in the world. And so thank you for being the person that writes it. Uh, and uh, yeah, thank you again to, for chatting a little bit more about it. Yes, thank you. He's reading from the tanks of perpetuity And he's screaming for the fortune But the morals If you would like to connect with Elle and Harada and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meniga. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.